You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. In an age of iPads and iPhones, when kids are digitally savvy out of the womb, pretty much, You might do a second take if you see your child with their nose in a book. But that's exactly what former Nickelodeon producer and children's author Mick Elliott is trying to achieve as an ambassador for 2019 Australian Reading Hour. Hi, Mick. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm terrific. Thank you. Learning to read is a really tough gig. I've just been through it with my daughter. Um, And it can be a real struggle. Yes. How do you get kids wanting to read, particularly when the readers that they come home with from the school can be extraordinarily boring. Oh, I think I think you're actually being quite generous. They are <laughs> they are turgid. They're they terrible, are ghastly. Aren't they? <laughs> they are ghastly. And it, I'm I'm actually I'm just through that phase with my son right now and he's still bringing home the readers. They're actually starting to get a little bit more complex story-wise. Um, but they are terrible and There is something fundamentally wrong, I believe, with the education system that the texts that we're using to try to encourage kids to read are like bad medicine. (laughs) It should never feel like that. Reading should be a joy. And uh, gosh, my my wife and I, we've read to our kids every night for their whole lives. My daughter's old enough now, well and surely, to be reading herself. um, And... Yeah, it's a joy when you're reading something which is actually entertaining and engaging for the adults. Because that makes you want to turn the page as well, right, if you're actually engaged in the story. That's right. But when you're learning about, I don't know, I'll never forget one was about making muffins. Right. Well, we're all interested in that, but to a point. (laughs) To a point. Yeah, someone's making them for you. You don't sit down and read recipes. Um, So how do you you get around that? Because I know when I speak to um, the primary school teachers who are wonderful and I say, oh, you know, she wants to read this book about Vikings from the from the library and it's fun and and they're like yes but the only problem is that the curriculum's been it's about comprehension and you want to know they understand the words and the meaning of the words before they move on to something's a bit beyond them yes. um how did you trade that line with your kids when they're learning to it, read it's it's very tricky and it's something that um as a working author i do a lot of school visits and talk to a lot of teacher librarians the role of the teacher librarian at school has never been more pivotal than it is right now um, but i think the, the first fundamental thing is that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for all kids. And you go into any kindergarten class or any year one class or whatever it might be, those 20 or 30 kids in there, every single one of them is going to have a different reading level and every single one of them is going to have different interests and every single one of them is going to have had different experiences with, with storytelling and reading. So um, that's one of the great challenges of the education system in general. Is it just plonks a, here's, here's the one size fits all, all for everybody, but every child in that room is going to have different needs in terms of reading. But I, I believe it actually really does start at home and, and Yes, while the readers do come home with you and you've got to tick that little box on the sheet the teacher gives you to say, yes, we read how to make muffins. Um, You can supplement that. And and my wife and I have have certainly done that at all. And and I think it's important, um, and certainly both in terms of my position as the ambassador for Australian Reading Hour, but also as an author, I I really um, rally against the concept of good or bad books. They're they're just books, and and reading should always be for joy. It should always be to engage and entertain. And the side side effect of that should be then uh, an increased vocabulary and an understanding of reading and so on. Um, I I think it's so funny as you say that because um, as – 
as I understand it, your books have quite a bit of mm, gross humour. Yes. And <laughs> fart jokes, etc. As, as many as I can reasonably fit as, in. And kids love that stuff. Um, now, I'm not saying I don't laugh at the occasional fart when it happens. I do. I'm not sure that I would find it as funny as my children do. Yes. How do you, as an author, tap into particularly the humour of children? Because any parent whose child comes home and says, I have these great jokes, mum, that I've made up, or dad, and you go, this is excruciating, a bit like the readers, because mm. they think they're hilarious <laughs> and they're really not funny. How do you find what's funny for children as an author? Yeah, it, it's a really, really interesting challenge. I mean, the, the first thing um, that we need to acknowledge, and this was true when I was working in kids' TV as well, is that you know, what, what's funny for a kid shouldn't be funny for us, and what's funny <laughs> for us shouldn't be funny for a kid, because otherwise, and, and this is probably part of, the, <laughs> part of the thing that's gotten me in trouble as an adult, is I still do maintain some of that childish sense of humour. Um, so, you know, in, in my you know, executive roles that I've had in, at Nickelodeon and so on, would find myself in meetings giggling at you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of silly innuendos and so on. Um, but but what what I've I've tried to do as as an author, and, you know, my my new series Scridge Dibley is, is is ultimately for sort of seven to ten year olds. It's a balance, and and those that scatological humour that you talk about, it can't just be that. Um, one of the things I was lucky enough to learn at Nickelodeon, they used to have a, a creative filter that they used for everything that they produced. And it was three really, really simple words, which was heart, fart, smart. Um, <laughs> and, and everything had to have the balance. It had, had to have heart. It had to have some sense of characters that had some sort of emotional connection with the audience. And yes, the fart aspect was, is there an opportunity for humor? But it also has to be smart as well. You can't talk down to kids. And that's something I've certainly seen um, from industry peers in the media who don't work in kids' TV. And they think, oh, you make kids' stuff, and that's all really easy, and you can just kind of put some fart jokes in and make it all colourful. No, you can't do that, because kids will detect that almost immediately, and they'll know that they're being patronised too. So you need that balance of heart, fart smart, like we used to do at Nickelodeon, but not exclusively one. And, and you know, there are uh, movies, there are shows, there are books out there that are just all fart jokes, and Kids get sick of it quickly if there's if there's not the the heart and the smart part of it as well to connect and have a story that they care about. Is that also about the narrative arc of a story? Because I find that um, particularly my seven year old is you get more engaged. It's just a human need to get engaged with a story that has a narrative arc, a beginning, a middle, and an yes. end. And it if you um, talk down to kids, then you kind of assume they don't need that. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And you know, the, the interesting thing is that all of the same storytelling um, techniques apply to writing for kids as they would if you're writing a, a crime thriller or a murder thriller or whatever for adults. Um, you still have to apply the same sort of um, storytelling rigour uh, for a kid's book. And, and as I say, Squidge uh, Dibley is written for seven or eight-year-olds. Um, but there is still a, a clear narrative arc there and there are themes that are explored there. And so, yes, while I have looked for those opportunities for there to be those you know, really, really full-on scatological moments, they are always there for a reason. Um, you know, It's never just, oh, let's have a character fart because that's funny. It's like, no, what, what, what is that character reacting to that causes that reaction? And, and the thing with our, our main character, Squidge, is that he has these afflictions with his body that react to things going on around him, um, which cause all these things to happen in his body, which are funny to kids but they have them for a reason and it ends up being that um, you know, the, the, the class teacher who's very very strict and who's been running this, the class like a concentration camp can't deal with that so the friction between those two forces becomes the humour of the book but it's not just a kid in class farting because kids think farts are funny you know? mm. I, I also find really interesting 
reading children's books as an adult because sometimes I'll be reading them and a, a concept will come up and I'll think, ah, oh, that's a bit serious or that's a bit dark mm. or um, there's an allusion to something like um, my daughter's obsessed with How to Train Your Dragon books. I love them. I'm reading those to my son at the moment. They're fabulous, aren't they? And um, But there's, there's death in them yes. and there's beheadings and all kinds of things that as an adult – I kind of go, oh, right, what is a, how do children process this? You know, we look at movies and we can see a rating and say, and then that's someone else deciding what's appropriate for our mm. children to watch and experts, I'm sure, who understand how children respond to things. But books I find really interesting because uh, as a parent, I'm probably inclined to be more protective of that stuff, but I don't really understand where kids are at. So with your books, when you're writing for that age bracket, how do you work out the themes, like you say, that aren't just the funny themes, the smart and the heart part? How do you work out what kids are ready for? Well, it, it's a real balance. And obviously, I work very, very closely um, with my publisher and the editor in terms of what is appropriate. Um, but, you know, kid, kids are ready to explore themes that are a lot more in depth than we would think. And I was quite surprised when my son came back from, you know, first week at kindergarten and suddenly he's exposed to all these other kids. And I'm sure every parent goes through this where you've had them in this lovely protected bubble, you know, for their whole preschool lives. And then suddenly they go to school and, you know, the kid, you know, at school who's got a 15-year-old brother who's been watching Chucky movies and suddenly (laughs) your son comes home and starts talking about Chucky movies at the age of six, um, but but obviously you know you, you've your first your first um, objective is you wanting to engage and you wanting to entertain. Um, but I think you know, what I've found is that you can actually explore themes that are confronting, but you do it in a way that's gift wrapped and you do it in a way that still feels safe. And there is something about the safety of the written word, um, which I think allows uh, the reader, allows the child to read it in their own time, to process it, to put the book down, to think about it. It's not like a movie or a video game or a YouTube clip where it's coming at you at full speed. Um, and, and, and obviously the great thing about books and storytelling is that you can actually – you, know, you can talk about them in the moment as, you, as you're reading it, if you're reading it with a parent or whatever it might be, and you can actually dissemble the text and unpack it a little bit. Um, and I see that with my son. We've read him you know, the Roald Dahl uh, books, which are fantastic. And, that, you know, they explore you know, just about every Roald Dahl protagonist is, is some sort of orphan or has yes. missing... So, you know, so straight away from the site, in fact, in several of the Roald Dahl books, you hear immediately that the child's parents have died or that, they, you know, with Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he's super poor and he's got grandparents living in, you know, the bed. Four in one you know, bed, yeah. This is a story about a kid who you know, wins a ticket to a chocolate factory, but you're dealing with poverty, and, you know, um, and, and that sort of thing. So I think you can actually explore really, really complex themes, but you just have to package it in such a way that the reader still feels safe still feels empowered and they're doing it on their own terms as a reader. You're, as you said, your son, you've just taken him through that um, learning to read yes. phase of his life and he's able to read now. Um, as the ambassador for Australian Reading Hour, how do you feel, what, what do you think about that idea of reading, parents reading out loud to children? I mean, it's something we do so naturally when they're small. Is it still important to do once they know how to read themselves? It has never been more fundamentally important than it is right now. And and I would encourage any parent um, to find that time at the end of the day, right up to whatever age your child will still let you read to them, I would say. And even um, with my my daughter, as I said, I don't read to her so much now. She's she's in high school, but um, even towards the latter years of primary school, when she was very, 
capable at reading herself, we would still find time. And I, I really loved the experience of, of that sort of 20 minutes or so sitting you know, next to her in bed and reading more complex books and being able to, and she loved it. And, you know, it, it's hard as a parent, as, as we all know that, you know, you get to that point of the evening at seven, eight o'clock and you're exhausted and you, all you want is to, you know, have the kids in bed and have that glass of wine and watch a bit of Netflix and, and to, to muster <laughs> that last little extra reserve that you were actually going to dedicate to some adult time go, okay, I'm going to spend the next, you know, 15, 20 minutes reading with my kids. It's so important. It's so important. And it, it, it creates bonds. It, it creates separation from, um, or I should say it creates some, um, Ability to be away from devices as well, and you know what? What, um, what I think all of us as parents and now our kids as well are facing is this uh, the obsession with our devices and our tablets. All of us are struggling with it. There's no roadmap for this. This is all new. What we're going through as a as a society as a society right now. Um, so that ability to to have reading time, which is at your own pace. You're choosing what you see, not having endless clips shoved in front of your face of what you might watch. Um, and it's gentle and it's calm time and it's bonding time. And you can choose what you want to read. And, um, yeah, and I mean, I love books. And I try to write the books that will actually, as you mentioned a moment ago, have something in there for the parents as well. Um, you know, in, in Squidge Ghibli, there's references to how the teaching staff are reacting to the different kids. And there's little little jokes in there which are for the parents, um, which probably go over the kids' heads, but are there so that the parents can have a bit of a chuckle and relate as well. Yeah, well, it makes a big difference. <laughs> Having read quite a few books that just bore me <laughs> yeah. to tears. Um, you are particularly passionate about getting boys into books. And I have seen some research that um, suggests that boys' brains are more susceptible to technology, that they find it harder to put it down, that they get linked in. And I have seen that with um, my children. I've got a boy and a girl, and I've seen my son get really kind of into Mm -hmm. his – it could just be watching something on YouTube. Um, How do you bring boys back into that – um, world of books so that they aren't so attached to their screen. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing is writing stories and creating characters that they are going to want to read and hear about um, is the first thing. And, and certainly that was my experience with the previous series, The Turners, the trilogy that I wrote. Um, and, and definitely that was what I set out to do with Squidge Dibley. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, we're in this really, really fascinating, quite confronting, also quite exciting time in terms of these devices being so much part of our lives. And, and, and I'm, I'm certainly not... My opinion on it isn't as a sort of Luddite that we should burn them and not use them. I mean, they are an incredible tool. Um, But what I've certainly found as a parent and what I've observed is that um, they become a tool that, on the one hand, can actually give you an escape from the demands of full-on parenting, you know, 15 hours a day. It's like, oh, if I just let them watch kids' YouTube for for the next hour, I can get some housework done or I can have a cup of coffee. Um, And it's very easy to fall into that temptation, but from there grows... That's where the dependence grows from. Um, you know, I've seen that. I've certainly um, experienced that myself where you just think, oh, it'll be easy just to let them play with it for a bit. But I, I guess the thing is that, you know, we, we are the parents ultimately. So, um, you know, we, we certainly have an approach um, to devices with our kids where we try to set some parameters. And obviously there are no devices, you know, after a certain time of day. Um, you also limit the use of them. Um, and again, that sort of flows into why it's so important to have that reading time, you know, um, once the, you know, once the sh- pajamas are on and we're in bed um, and just being able to have that time to read together um, or to have them reading a book on their own. It's, that's really, really important. Just also to let their brains calm down as well because it's super, super stimulating everything that they're seeing on 
you know, iPads and so on. Um, so they have that ability to calm the brain. But that, like I said, there's no roadmap for this. Like, we don't know where it's all going to go. And I'm hearing the analogy quite a bit at the minute about this is like the early days of cars where they didn't have seatbelts and anyone could drive and there yes. were no road rules. And everyone, And now we look back and go, actually, maybe we did need seatbelts. <laughs> yeah, there were um, dangers. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's actually similar with, with smartphone technology right now. We're in this sort of wild, wild west period. And I think in time we'll go, actually, wait a minute. Yeah, maybe it's not great to have them on your dashboard while you're driving. Maybe it's not great to let them be completely used freely for 10 hours a day in the hands of a toddler. But we don't know. This is all new. It's all new for us. All learning. Well, people can get around it by reading your book. So this is the first of the Scridge Dibley Yes, that's right. So it's the first of four books. So Scridge Dibley Destroys the School, which is out now. We're doing um, a special um, novella version um, called Scridge Dibley Destroys History, which will come out for Australian Reading Hour in September at the bargain price of just $2.99. And then uh, then there'll be two more uh, Scridge books coming over the uh, the months after that. So oh, um, start of a series and very, very exciting time and hopefully see lots of, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds uh, reading it. Profusely. Instead of, instead of having their devices. Mick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. That's Mick Elliott. He's a children author, former Nickelodeon producer and ambassador for 2019 Australian Reading Hour, which falls on September 19. We'll include links to where you can get a copy of his new book in the notes of this episode. If your child is having sleeping issues, chances are they'll end up in a sleep clinic. Pediatric sleep clinics these days are, you know, are really fun. Um, I don't know whether the children think it's fun, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's lots of things to do, and you can play with toys, and you can. Uh, usually, the staff are pretty pediatric friendly. Um, so the first thing is that children need to have a, a whole range of leads, if you like, electrical leads uh, placed onto their scalp. So they, they're kind of pasted on with some special paste. And they, um, when I used to do it, we used to make fun of it and kids you know, stick their leads on their teddy bear and they stick the lead on me and then we'd stick a lead on them and make it into a game. And these leads uh, are on the outside of the scalp and they can read the brain waves. The brain waves are important because they tell us what stage of sleep the child is in because each stage of sleep has a very specific and characteristic brainwave pattern and brainwaves are important to diagnose a whole range of sleep disorders. That's Sarah Blunden, a paediatric sleep specialist from the Sleep Health Foundation. She outlines what you can expect from a stay in a sleep clinic next on Feed, Play, Love. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning and I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.